very intimidating to be a public speaker, particularly pastors. You, you know, I heard about a young pastor who went to a church to candidate. And he's standing at the door greeting people as the, they were leaving. And a little fellow in a green jacket came up, grabbed his hand and said, Terrible sermon. The little guy went back, got in line again, came back, shook his hand and said, Worst sermon ever heard. The little guy in the green jacket went back, got in line again, came back and said, can't believe you preached such a bad sermon. So after the service, he, he was talking to the steering committee or the search committee, and he said, can you tell me about the little guy in the green jacket? Oh, yeah, don't worry about him. That's Fred. He's a bit slow. He only repeats what he's heard everybody else say. <laughs> so be careful if you want to be in public work. You get some real zingers. We must build a theology for suffering because the Bible is overrun with theology for suffering. You'll have to have a good theology for yourself as a counselor, as a pastor. You'll have to have a good theology for the people in your church you're preaching to, a good theology for people you're counseling because tonight you heard a string of wonderful stories the same four men could stand here and tell you, boy, there is one that just isn't coming through yet. And everyone here has the same mix. I was thinking as they were sharing those wonderful stories, we probably have thousands of incredible stories that could be told by uh, many of you here tonight. But at the same time, you're saying, but there is this one that is just stuck and I can't quite get through this thing, and God is not showing the way. Well, if he's not showing the way, it may be time to present the person with a good theology of suffering. Make a note of this. You can endure anything provided you have a big enough reason. You can endure anything provided you have a big enough reason. Tonight, last night, I was laying a foundation and that is that I believe that it is through suffering that God is shaping us and equipping us in order to entrust us with the practice of authority. You gain the position of authority the moment you become a believer in Christ. You win the position by the obedience of Christ, but you gain the practice of authority, God really working through you in greater and greater ways as he breaks you down from all reliance upon self and total reliance upon the Holy Spirit, as he shapes the Lord Jesus Christ in us, as he fills us with greater and greater wisdom, so that we handle with tremendous care this great power of the third member of the Trinity. I believe that God is equipping us for authority, both to practice in this lifetime and when we are with Christ in person in the coming kingdom. However, let me take you to another level that has been of a great encouragement to me. And that is found in Psalm chapter 44. And I'm going to quickly walk you through the psalm. And then I'm going to share with you a story out of my own life simply to illustrate how this works. And uh, I hope that as I'm sharing my story, I don't want to do that just to be talking about myself. I hope that there'll be points of identity in you that you're saying, yes, I can see that pattern happening in my life. And I hope that it'll send us out of here tonight with a fresh hope and confidence and 
a fresh message for people we are preaching to and counseling to give them a big enough reason to endure some very painful days in their lives. Psalm chapter 44 begins with a burst of praise. And in verses 1 through 8, the psalmist is recounting past triumphs. Past triumphs. And then in verses 9 through 16, he's talking about present trouble. Present trouble. And then in verses 17 through 21, he's talking about perplexity, a great perplexity. And then in verse 22, he comes to a providential purpose. Now I want to work through those verses with you quickly, then illustrate it out of my life, and hope that you'll go to bed tonight with a whole new sense of worship and praise to God for whatever it is he not only has allowed, but also has brought into your life as he has led you to deserts. In chapter 44, verse 1, recounting past triumphs, we have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what you did in their days and days long ago. With your hand you drove out the nations and planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples and made our fathers flourish. Watch this. It was not by their sword. We're talking about a small band of Jewish people who were, were um, tramping in mud pits in Egypt they were not trained for warfare. They were not trained for agriculture. They are coming out of Egypt, this small band of people. It is not by their sword that they are going to drive out these overwhelming nations that are in front of them. And so God brought this small band of people through the Red Sea. First of all, he released them from Pharaoh. There's a whole study in spiritual warfare. Notice how Moses did not go into Egypt. And forgive me for getting sidetracked, but let me inject this. It'll take me a few moments, and you won't pay any, anything extra for it. He did not go to Pharaoh and say, I had a revelation at a burning bush. Let my people go. And Pharaoh said, Blessed be the name of Jehovah, they may go. Nor did Moses walk up to Pharaoh and nail him on the first crack. If you read the account again, Pharaoh and all the forces of darkness in and through Pharaoh so impacted Moses, he went reeling into the desert and it took two chapters for God to give him the courage to go back. Let me tell you something. Burning bushes go dim real fast when you're in the heat of the battle, don't they? And you are wishing God would give you another burning bush encounter to encourage you, and guess what? He doesn't. He wants you to press on in the dark valley where you are in a war against powers of darkness and it seems as though God has deserted you and you are up against a Pharaoh and the battle begins with Pharaoh appearing to overpower everything God has ever shown you and yet you come back and you persist and you persist. It's a gradual battle and warfare. It eventually begins to even out and before long you like Moses are taking the victory and, and Pharaoh must surrender. Now, those are the triumphs he's talking about. Then they have the triumph at the Red Sea, the triumph of crossing the desert and God's patience with all their rebellion, and then the triumph of driving out armies, the triumph of dropping the walls of Jericho, the triumph of coming into the Holy Land. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. You are my king and my 
God. He is riding a wave of praise. I'm sure that every person here can look back at points in your life if you clear the clutter of the present and the pressures and the problems, you will look back at times when you were riding a wave of divine intervention and God was opening seas and dropping walls and you were giving testimonies about it and then suddenly, verse 17, or rather verse 9, present trouble, but now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy. And our adversaries have plundered us. God, you were giving us victory in the past. And now my ministry is in financial straits. I don't know if I can make it. I'm trying to serve you as a counselor. And I can hardly take care of my family. Where is your faithfulness? I know you called me. I had a burning bush experience. And uh, now I'm hanging over a cliff. We're in financial trouble. I have a case that I can't get through. I can't bring it to resolve. I've been praying and fasting and nothing is happening. And I've got problems at home. And my wife is beginning to say, why don't you consider counseling at home a bit? God, we're in trouble. Guess what? You have your seatbelt on? You are in the dead center of the will of God. I'll tell you, Job's friends thought they had God figured out because they had a simple formula. The formula went this way. If you're good, you're blessed. If you're bad, you're spanked. And Job's three friends have multiplied like rabbits in every generation. And you have them all over your church. And as soon as you get into problems, uh, well, no, um, why don't we think about this? I mean, you know, you could pick up a spare job somewhere, couldn't you? And you're saying, do you know how exhausting it is to counsel? Do you know how much I have to spend time in prayer just to rebuild my inner spirit to be able to handle this kind of counseling load? We're not dealing with casual counseling. We're dealing with, with serious stuff. And by the way, the kind of counseling that most of you are doing, when you're doing it, you're in the middle of energy forces of light and dark. And it's like sitting in the sun. You don't know how badly burned you are until it's over. And then you go through three days where you think you have leukemia. And some guy's telling you to get a spare job to make more money. He's lucky you didn't deck him. In a little moment of a physical manifestation of a spiritual lesson. <laughs> Bam! Now here you are hanging on to God and it appears as though he's not hanging on to you. You're a pastor. You came there by the call of God and you knew it and you've got a whole board full of pharaohs. I mean, a few months after you get there, the glow wears off and it's like they're looking at you as if, who are you? Where'd you come from? You're going to lead us where? And you're saying, God, did I hear you? Now, you're into present trouble and everything in you will begin to want to believe the deception of Job's friends. I must be out of God's will. I must have blown it some way. And Job's friends will come along. And then, 
and then the old visitor will be back, Lucifer himself, and he will say, do you know why this trouble is? Do you remember that sin? And he'll bring something up, a dredge it up out of your past, and guess who will stand up to agree with Satan? Your conscience. I want to talk to you for a moment about your conscience. Have you ever heard the saying, let your conscience be your guide? Have you heard it? Don't. Because your conscience was as broken and shattered in the fall as every other part of your being. And in the fall, your conscience became a pharisaical legalist. And your conscience believes if you've been bad, you ought to be beat up forever. When the Bible talks about a cleansed conscience, I believe that it not only speaks of a conscience that is relieved because you're not sinning lately, but it's also talking about a conscience that you cleansed by teaching it mercy and grace. Your conscience knows nothing of mercy and grace. It's a legalist. And when Satan comes and says, you sinned 25 years ago, that's why you're in trouble now. Your conscience stands up and says, you bet. He's right. You're guilty. And you will go on a crippling guilt trip that will shrivel your life in ministry. And you'll plead with God for mercy and grace and forgiveness. And God is saying, what are you talking about? I think, if you recall, I said that when I forgive you, I put it out of my mind and I bring it to recall no more. Sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. It's buried in the Marianas Trench, seven miles deep in the Marianas Trench, going past Guam in the Pacific Ocean. All the, the fish are sick down there because all your sins are down there. Your sins are separated as far as you are, for, uh, as far as the east is from the west. Now, what in the world are you here whining at my throne for? Forgiveness. It's established at the cross. It's over. It's settled. And your conscience says with Satan, yeah, but you're still guilty. Let me tell you something that you really better believe and hang on to and pray into your soul constantly. This, this might, even though you've heard this before, it always shocks me every time I say it. Do you realize that you are as pure and holy and clean and blameless this instant as you will be 10 trillion years from now in future eternity? You cannot get cleaner than you are through the blood of the Lamb. So when trouble comes, Satan and your conscience will line up and Job's friends will be banging at your door and all they are doing is trying to tell you, man, you have really blown it. Here is where it really gets tough, the perplexity in verse 17. All this happened to us, though we had not forgotten you or been false to your covenant. God, the formula isn't working. I've been good, and I feel like I'm being spanked. If I'm good, I'm supposed to be blessed. By the way, that theology is hanging around. It is it is, you know what Paul called that people that promoted that theology? Dogs. And boy, we have a lot of dogs around our churches. Because the moment you get into problems, marital problems, emotional problems, financial problems, physical, I don't care what they are, you've got Job's friends banging on your door, and they may be some of the top spiritual people in your church who never learned grace and mercy themselves. They only understand legalism. And if there's something wrong in your life, it's a sign God's mad and he's beating you up to get you straightened out. And if you would just repent, you'd be okay. 
The perplexity is, God, we have not turned away from you, and you are not with us. Then, that verse that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 8, in the middle of one of the greatest expositions on spiritual warfare, verse 22, the providential purpose, and this is what you need to hang on for dear life. Look at it, verse 22. Yet for your sake, you can circle and underscore the words your sake. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. There is a providential purpose in the suffering of your life. There is a providential purpose in the suffering of many of your clients and parishioners. That is none of our business. God and God alone knows what his purpose is. And many times, no one will know it in this lifetime. I'm going to give you at the end of this message a possible scenario of a purpose. But let me tell you something. The God of this universe, who crucified his son at the hands of sinful men, has a purpose in every breath that you take. And every battle that you face, every discouragement, every setback, and every blessing, and every advance, he has a sovereign purpose purpose, and we are not going to know the end of the story until we stand before his throne and see all that he was doing for his honor and his glory. Amen? A little bit weak. I know what you're thinking. God, I know it's true, but I hope you're not looking at me. Let me share with you a story that happened to me recently. And I hope that it'll just give you a bit of encouragement. There are some parts of my life that will not have an ending, like the ending that I'm going to share with you, but this one does cycle around to an amazing ending. Three and a half years ago, Dr. Bubeck was to speak in Guam. He came back from China tired and asked if I would take his place, and I did, and that began to open up doors across Micronesia. Now, I know you're looking at me like, micro, what? Do you know where Hawaii is? Let me see your hands. Sinners. Do you know where Japan is? Good. There are 3,000 miles of water in between, and sprinkled across that 3,000-mile span are little islands called the micro, small, the Micronesian Islands. And a couple of summers ago, I ended up doing a leadership conference on the state of Chuuk. That's 200 islands. 40 of them are inhabited with 70,000 people. And uh, the state of Chuuk is the largest of the states, the four states of the Micronesian Islands. And um, when I got there, I discovered there are tremendous problems here. Of 70,000 people, only 3,000 have jobs. They are being transitioned from a subsistence of farming and agriculture into a cash economy and world economy, and the world is trying to shove them into something that took our nations hundreds of years to develop into. They've not made the curve. I discovered that their, their hospital, well, let me just tell it to you as, as straight as I can. They have, on the 40 islands, not one dispensary has so much as an aspirin or a Band-Aid. There are no doctors, no nurses. There are some doctors and nurses at the hospital, but if you go to that hospital, everyone on the islands know you go there to die. They often don't even have stitches. 
Every machine in the hospital is broken. Not one thing works. The x-ray machine is broken, the acid is eating through the floor, the building is crumbling, and the weather comes in. There's a hum an enormous hole in the wall of the operating room. Medicine is in a serious crisis. Their education is in a serious, serious crisis. Their whole infrastructure is devastated. Most of the islands have none, no electricity, no roads. They are living in the most basic National Geographic manner. And on top of that, they are still infected by their animistic past, and suicide among the teenage boys is sky high. They often find them swinging by the neck from a tree. For whatever reason, it's always that kind of a suicide. Last summer, I was speaking there at a conference, and it's so hot there and the conferences are demanding. I'm speaking three and four times a day. I generally go on an eating discipline and an exercise discipline to get ready physically. And I will tell you, I went there having eaten steamed vegetables and lean meat for a couple of weeks and exercised extra hard. I was really feeling great. And throughout the whole conference, my, my energy levels were sky high. Toward the end of the conference, I felt myself getting weak. I had a couple of days before I was to fly to the island of Palau for another conference, and uh, the governor, the former governor of the island, arranged for me to go out and dive because that's where the battle of the of the um, the Truck Lagoon was fought in World War II. There are over 60 uh, Japanese planes and ships sunken that divers love to go and see, and I went out with some men to, to dive, and I had no strength. I had to come back. And uh, I left that island and went on to, uh, to Palau. Now, before I left, I had had some meetings with the present governor, and a friendship developed. In fact, he came to the closing service of the conference that went to past midnight, and he stayed for the whole thing. He's a born-again believer. And a friendship developed, and out of our discussions, he asked a rare thing. He asked if I would work with him to help him write a master plan on how to rebuild his civilization. I said, Governor Walter, I'll do that under one condition. If I can do it for you as a free gift in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, those people were turned, to, turned into slaves prior to World War II by the Japanese. And then, now that they are an American trust, they have been given money but they have not been given the help they need in medicine and education and training, and they have not been able to handle the transition into this modern world, and it's a serious crisis. One of the finest pastors out there, 53 years of age, last June I sat under a tree with him plotting how we would build a radio station that he could preach on for the next 20 years. He was the most eloquent, gifted pastor of the islands. Three weeks later, he was dead of a stroke. It should not have happened had he had a doctor's care. It was simply high blood pressure and a blood clot and a stroke. By the way, the pressure that brought that on was the kind of counseling that you people are doing. He had been trained uh, by men like Dr. Bubeck, and the needs were so great, the avalanche was so great on him that the pressure was overwhelming and it took his life. The island situation is critical beyond what I can describe to you tonight. I left the island with the agreement that I would work with the governor to help him write a master plan, which then he, he would be presenting to the Congress of the United States for a, a funding over the next 20 years. 
And um, when I got to Palau, I said to the people there, I really am weak. And they said, look what you've been through. You need rest. So I went to bed for several days and kept getting weaker lying in bed. Friday night, the conference was to begin in Palau on Sunday. Friday night, they took me to a clinic, and it was the clinic of the president of the Pacific Basin Medical Association, Dr. Yano, uh, the finest physician in all of the Pacific. And uh, w from the symptoms, he said, maybe you have the flu. We don't know what you have. He gave me a shot. I went back to the hotel room. The next day, I was worse. Sunday morning, I was able to open the conference and saw God move in a, an amazing work of his spirit. As we saw on that Sunday morning, over 90% of the congregants respond publicly to make various levels of renewed commitments to Christ. That night, I was back at, the at his clinic, and uh, he said, I don't know what you have. He, he, he was drawing blood, sending it to Hawaii. He said, this ought to be back in three days. The test results, they came back three weeks later, which is common in the Pacific. Serious prob medical problems in the Pacific. And um, so he said, I don't know what you have, but we, we're in trouble. You're dehydrating, and we're losing ground quickly. He said, I'm going to begin to feed you intravenously and put you on metronidazole. I call it metronitrogen. I will tell you, pray that you never have to have it. That's all I can tell you. And so Monday night, I went back to the hotel. Tuesday night, Tuesday morning, I was back for another treatment. Was in bed all day Tuesday. Tuesday night, I'm in his clinic for a third treatment and degenerated before his eyes. And he says, straight to, to um, intensive care at the hospital. I want to tell you, it's not a hospital that you want to be in. It's one of the finest hospitals in the Pacific. Wonderful, wonderful people. But you would not want to be in that hospital. And I crawled in that bed, which was a sheet and an army blanket, and I had to wear the clothes that I was in. They have no, they have no clothing for you to wear. You, whatever you come in, in, if it's a suit or whatever, you wear that the whole time you're there. There's no shower, no place to clean. They do not feed you. If people don't bring food in, you don't eat. And I was lying there that night in a pain that I cannot begin to describe. I could not. I, I lost the ability to pray. The pain was so severe throughout my entire chest, I could not touch my ribs without a horrible pain causing me to become nauseous and, and close to vomiting. And all I could do hour after hour through the night is lie there and groan because somehow that would help me get past one wave of pain to the next. And I remember saying, God, I hope that you are raising people up to pray. I can't concentrate. And I remember I, I had no idea that through email, God was raising up thousands of people around the world to pray. Evidently, it was a serious attack. And somewhere pre-dawn, I was lying there, and I looked at the, my left, and I could see the ocean waters coming in past the, the hospital, and the sun was glistening across the ocean, and I really, really thought this might be it. I had the most haunting sensation of death and emptiness. I didn't think I was going to die, but the pain was too unreal. I didn't know if I could survive it. And I remember saying, God, is this how it ends? Is this it? Not even a, a decent goodbye to my wife? And I'll tell you, if I've ever had a visit of hell, it, it was then.
until I said, if this is it, if I die out here in an, in an unknown situation, you're wise, so be it. I was very surprised to see the sun rise the next morning. And the next morning I said to Dr. Yano, I said, Dr. Yano, I don't care what you have to do, but I don't think I'll ever survive another night like last night. Please do whatever you have to do. Throughout that day, the Church of Palau really became what the church is to be. Five times throughout the day, the pastors came in and prayed with me. Groups would come in and sing and worship God and pray. And I heard a woman stand at the foot of my bed. She did not know me. And she stood there weeping. Oh, God, give us our brother. We need him. Give us our brother. I was too ill, too full of pain to feel that emotionally. But I knew I was watching the church in action. And that night, Dr. Yano said, Ron, I know you don't want another night like last night. I have one shot left. It's the only shot on the island. If it doesn't work, I can't help you. He gave me a shot that night, <laughs> and I'm not sure what planet I was on. But you all look very funny down there below. I, I could understand why people get into psychedelic drugs. I saw things in front of my eyes that if I were an artist, I would be making a fortune off of painting what I saw through the night that night. I didn't feel a thing. It was either Mars or Venus. I'm not sure where it was, but it, it was up there somewhere. And by the next morning, I had recovered enough that he, he kept me as an outpatient and put me back into the hotel because it was so costly in the hospital. I came home, and my doctor in, in Pennsylvania put me through a whole new battery of tests. He said, there is nothing there. And uh, the test came back from Hawaii, and, I, and Dr. Yano sent my results. And I emailed back. I said, Dr. Yano, I don't understand a word of what you're saying. Could you translate this into the human language so I can understand it? And I have in my file what he emailed back. What you have is a mystery. They don't have a clue what it was. All I know is that it was about as close to death as I have ever come. Now, why did God allow that? There were some that wanted to find out, was there a sin in my life that I haven't repented of? Let me tell you, when you're in that condition, you repent of things you have never thought of doing. <laughs> you confess your imagination. And you hang on to the fact that it doesn't take God 10 years to forgive you. It's instant. And uh, I said, I'm going to tell you, and I brought them to this scripture, I believe God has me here for a providential purpose. I don't know what it is, but I believe he has done that. Now, God gave me the strength to bring the last closing two messages at the end of the week at the conference but what's interesting is that their concern was so great, that church that does not have money was willing to pay up to $15,000 to buy several seats on an airline and pay a doctor $2,000 to escort me home to get me home. The, the brother to the president of Palau called his brother and said, if it's contagious, can we get a military plane somewhere? We don't want him to die here. That was nice. And uh, let's get them home. Let them die at home. 
And I was amazed at all that concern and all the awareness that came out of that. I came home and I was just sharing the story with, with uh, a couple of churches in a, in a crusade like I'm doing here with you tonight. For no reason but to teach people that there are providential purposes of God. Making no solicitation whatsoever. And a woman came up to me and said, here's $10,000, do something for Chuk. I said, I'll put it in escrow until we know the best way to use it. And uh, I knew this woman. She's a young widow, could really not afford to do that. She really dug deep to sacrifice. I would not have accepted it, but she showed me the scriptures that God showed her. And she said, this is not from me. This is from God to help the people in Chuk. A crusade picked up on that, and they took an extra offering, and, and so we ended up with a, a $12,000 escrow fund for Chuk. And uh, I was going back to Chuk just a month and a half ago to spend a month touring the islands with the government officials because I couldn't write a master plan without seeing the reality of what is there. And uh, two weeks before going, the governor asked, Ron, do you have a video camera? knowing that we got to get the story out so people can see it. I said, no, I don't. Do you? He said, no. And it went through my mind, maybe that's what the money is for. I called the woman. I said, listen, I don't want to influence you. If you want me to buy something for the hospital, I'll do that. But I think that might be short-lived. If I could get a camera and we can get the story out so that the right hospitals that donate equipment and the right businesses and churches can see it, we may be able to multiply that many times over. She said, Ron, I've been praying for three months that God would show us how to multiply that money. She said, get the camera. I said, you want to take a few days to think about it? She said, no, get the camera. January and February, I was in Chuk with that camera a state-of-the-art digital camera better than what is found in most TV stations around the world so that television is catching up to us rather than us catching up to it. And I will tell you that when you see someday the videos, it'll, it'll tear your heart out. We videotaped a baby in the hospital being born by C-section. Moments earlier, I was videotaping a rat eating off of the kitchen floor. The whole place is absolutely crumbling in. They can't push back the way that this is crushing in on them. In their medicine, their education, the whole civilization is in a major crisis. And uh, while I was on this trip, some very interesting things happened. Now, I understand that none of this would have happened without that illness last summer. No one would have taken seriously how deadly it is to get ill out in, in Micronesia. And uh, while I was there on this last trip, the governor called the religious leaders of the islands in two weeks before I got there and said, Ron Susek is coming. He's coming for the government, but if you want to use him, you can have precedence over our needs. They put together rallies, and in two weeks, I preached to over 6,000 people with over 90% committing themselves to Jesus Christ. I had a meeting with the Roman Catholic bishop, understanding that understand Catholicism is at least 70% of the population. And while we were meeting, discussing the social crisis, the, the bishop said, I heard you preach on the radio last Sunday. Now, I was preaching a Turner Byrne gospel message. He said, I drove along listening to you preach, and I thought, thank God somebody is speaking this way to these people. And I got an email from him last week 
anything I can do to help you, I'll help you. The president of Palau, I had a two-hour luncheon with him. He gave me the master plan of his, his country as a sample to help us write the master plan for Chuk. And he said, anything I can do to help you, let me know, we'll help you. God is throwing the doors open to, to share truth with the Roman Catholic Church. You're not going to have their ears without the bishop saying, listen to the man. Those ears are open. When I would arrive at islands in the governor's boat with a government official on one side and an armed guard on the other, and I would sit there and tell these chiefs and these leaders, I cannot help you, but God can. And I'm going to do all I can to put you in touch with the people who can help you, but you need to pray because God loves you, and then explain the gospel to them. I'll tell you, in that setting, I had a hearing that you cannot get any other way. Now here is where we get to the mountaintop of this thing. I addressed his, his cabinet, the governor's cabinet, just a few weeks ago in a two-hour session. And last night, after last night's service, I was talking to the governor. And his slogan is he wants to make Chuk a promised land. And last night he extended to me an official invitation when I'm back there this June to address his whole government on the biblical principles of a promised land. Now, am I dreaming or am I dreaming? God is absolutely throwing doors open that the missionaries have been working for and praying for for half a century, and God elected that the way he would build the credibility with those people and open the opportunities in America is by bringing me to the edge of death. I will tell you, I would not surrender that great privilege as frightening as it was going through it for anything in the world. Because I now have a national television program in Canada that wants to carry the story. We have a national radio network, the Moody Network, that wants to carry the story. We have enough, two other networks that want to carry the story. As soon as we are ready to get the story out, God is doing the impossible. Now, my story in that event has a wraparound. I couldn't see anything lying in a hospital racked with pain. Now, months later, I am seeing that God had a sovereign purpose and things are happening that absolutely would never happen. And what I mean by credibility with them, they know that I nearly died. And you know what struck them? They kept saying, he came back. They're accustomed to the visiting speakers who come and go to put in their resume. They've been to Micronesia. This guy nearly died and he came back. We can believe him. We can trust him. Now, your story. Some of your stories will wrap around like that. You'll have endings to it. I have some in my life that don't have endings yet. They may not come in this lifetime. Some of your endings may not come in this lifetime. What I'm trying to get you to see and believe and to help your parishioners and counselees to see and believe is that there is a God who has a sovereign purpose not only in healing and delivering and building up and binding but also on deserts and in suffering that makes no sense and even brings us to, to death's door. And some of his reasons we will not know until we stand before his throne. Could I suggest one to you in closing? 
Now this is just a maybe. This is not in the Bible, but I will not be surprised if this proves true. Remember that Satan is your adversary, and remember that he wants with all of his power to devour you and wreck your witness and, and damage your life, and you're in a fight against him. Is it possible, is it possible that that period of life where God allowed you to go through a long, hard, hot desert, a blinding, painful experience, you were not even understood by your husband or wife. Your children said, if that's your God, I don't want him. Job's friends set up their tent in your backyard. Is it possible, and by the way, let me tell you what I personally believe is the most dangerous, horrible emotion of all emotion. Aloneness. Utter, utter aloneness. Have you ever been to that island? There are no footprints of the many people that have been there before. There are no signposts. You are taken to the island of aloneness where you have to believe God by sheer gut faith. And if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, you'll recognize it when you get there. God cuts everyone off. You don't understand why other people are still laughing. You don't understand why they even feel like getting up and going to work in the morning. You have seen life in its rawest form, and you are there seeing it alone, and it's a haunting. Well, think of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Was it that haunting experience of utter aloneness that he was speaking out of? I think so. God will take you through that. And when you go through that, if you have ever learned God, that's where you're going to learn Him. That's the ultimate seminary. Is it possible that you'll go through that experience and you haven't turned away from God? It doesn't make sense why He's not supporting you or He doesn't appear to be supporting you. Is it possible, if you could take your mind forward to the judgment seat of Christ, the church of all time is seated and your name is called to stand alone before the judge, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, but also your Savior and your husband, Jesus Christ. And in your mind is that dark night of your life, the Puritans called it the desertions of God, that night of the soul, it may have been a day, it may have been a year, it may have been a decade. God may have entrusted you with a lifetime of something. And in your all the times you failed. And even the time when you nearly cut the last strand of faith and bailed out. And you are frightened that you've had it. But you don't sense an edgy, judgmental spirit coming from Jesus as he brings up that dark night. And as he recounts, not 
The times that you nearly fell, those were washed in the blood. But recounts how, with one last thread of faith, holding you to the cliff, keeping you from dropping to the rocks below, you still clung on to faith, saying, God, it makes no sense. It hurts beyond measure, but I choose, I choose to believe you and trust you. I will honor you. Is it possible that to your surprise you will hear him say as he looks into the distance, Satan, come here. And beside you stands the one who haunted you off of your shoulder as hard as he could to get you to sever that last strand of faith and hope. Satan, when you were with me in prehistoric eternity, you had everything and most of all you had me. And your pride rose up against me and you sought to dethrone me. There is my child beside you. I allowed you to sink your fangs into his or her life. I allowed you to inflict some blows that were totally unfair and uncalled for. They never saw me. All they had was a book. And I allowed you to bring the curtain of night down so fully that it appeared as though I did not conduct myself as this book says I will. And they had reason enough to disbelieve the book. And they chose to honor me by faith on the island of aloneness, on the desert of agony. Satan... Condemned. Is it possible that the greatest trial of your life where you hung on by faith, obedience to honor God when there was no sane reason to do it other than faith, that you were nailing the final nail of eternal condemnation in Satan's casket of doom. That is a pretty big reason to endure the long night, isn't it? Whether that scenario will happen or not, I don't know. But there is one scenario that I do know will happen. As you endure... By faith, believing that God will be faithful either at some point in this lifetime or beyond this lifetime, God will not go back on his faithfulness when you stand before his throne. You will be rewarded for honoring and glorifying him even when you didn't feel like it by sheer commitment to press on by faith believing God. And his purposes are so high, some of them 
we may not see in this lifetime. Press on. Press on. Press on. Let's stand as we pray. Now, Father, I could only communicate thoughts to people's minds. You make the application. There are hundreds of people here. You make each individual application. You bring each individual encouragement. That affirmation of your spirit, yes, yes. Don't worry about Pharaoh. Face him. Don't worry about the sea. Walk. Don't worry about the armies. Press on. Don't worry about the walls. They'll fall. Father, breathe the hope that each person here needs. That you are not neglecting them. You are not delaying your answer. You are working purposes greater than what we can understand in the small framework of our lives at this point. I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.